Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lee Pastor Daryl Anderson continues the series title checkbox with part seven, Check Religion. Religion has a bad connotation to many people. However, James gives insight into what the purest, best expression of religion looks like. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. James chapter one. Uh, we're continuing, hopefully, to check boxes where we're going through some characteristics and qualities that James uh, says are important for us as believers to practically live out our Christian life. So as we go through uh, the idea is that we're able to check that box and say either, yes, I have that or I want that. I know that I need that as part of my life. This morning, we're going to be in verses 26 and 27, and we're going to talk about or we're going to check the box of religion. Let's look in 26. If anyone considers himself religious and does, <clears throat> excuse me, and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, James used this term religion, uh, being religious, and that has a bad connotation for a lot of people. Uh, when you talk to a lot of people about Christianity, they'll say, hey, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Talk to some people that don't want to really be involved in church. They'll say, hey, I don't really get into organized stuff. I love Jesus, but I'm just not religious. When people think about religion, sometimes they think about something that's cold or hard or ceremonial, ritualistic, um, and so they, they kind of shy, shy away from it. But James, in this passage, describes what he calls as pure and faultless religion. And the real word right there is worship. So what he's talking about is how can we demonstrate pure and faultless worship. So he's using this term in this passage in the highest, best way that he can when he says religion. And what I see in this passage are two dynamics as we relate to this topic of religion. I see a caution and a call. And the caution pertains to deception and the call pertains to devotion. So what we see is a caution to beware of deception and a call to behave with devotion. So let's break those down and look at those two. Let's look at the caution first. The caution of deception. James, it's interesting, uses this word deceive three times in James chapter one. So obviously he's trying to say something. He's trying to be sure that we're not deceived. Now, in our English, it's all the same word, just deceive. But James actually uses three different Greek words. To give a little tweak, they all mean to be deceived, but it gives a little tweak to how we're deceived. In verse 16, he said, don't be deceived, in reference to us being dragged away and enticed by our flesh and by Satan's temptation. That word means to be led astray or to, to veer off course, if you will. When we talked about that verse several weeks ago, we talked about that Satan isn't trying to drag you into sin with you kicking and screaming and fighting. What he's hoping is he can convince you that it's so appealing and so good that you'll just come willingly into it. It's kind of like throwing the breadcrumbs if you're trying to catch an animal or something and you leave these breadcrumbs and all of a sudden the animal doesn't know what he's doing. All of a sudden, boom, it's a trap and he set the trap. That's the idea here that we've been deceived. 
and, and it's led us astray. In verse 22, he says, deceive yourselves in the context of listening to the word, but not doing it. That word, it means to be duped, but it means through false reasoning. Colossians 2.4 uses the same word. It says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. In other words, the idea here is, in my mind, I can convince myself through reasoning, through rationalization, through some type of arguments that I can conceive in my mind that it's okay for me just to listen to the word and never act on it. So I somehow reasoned that in my head, but that reasoning has called me to, has caused me to be deceived. Now, in our passage, verse 26, he says, don't deceive yourself. If you do, then your religion is worthless. This word means to be tricked, but it has the idea of being cheated or being cheated out of something. This same word is used in 1 Timothy 2.14 when Paul refers to Eve and says it was the woman who was deceived. Now, just for the record, Adam sinned as well. Okay? He just wasn't tricked into it. He just did it willingly. But in the passage, it says that Eve was deceived. And the idea of this is she was tricked, but because she was tricked, it caused her to miss out on something. It cheated her from the goodness that God had offered. It cheated her from this life that God had presented. It cheated her from experiencing all the goodness that God had was offering. And this is the idea that James is talking in this passage now, that we would not be deceived so that our religion would be worthless. Worthless means empty and void and fruitless and, and, and inadequate. So what he's saying is, don't allow Satan, don't allow anything to cheat us out of experiencing pure and faultless Worship that would cheat us out of experiencing what God, God has for us. When that happens, we're deceived. So first, he gives us this caution not to rob ourselves or cheat us out of this experience of a worthless religion, but rather we would be engaged and involved in something that has great value and great worth and great impact in the kingdom. So with that caution, now he moves into verse 27 and he tells us what pure and faultless religion looks like. And this is where we go into the call of devotion. Because I think to experience pure and faultless religion, it, it's, it's all about us answering this call to devotion. Pure and faultless here means uh, unspoiled. It means to be innocent. Uh, so it's talking about being innocent of deception and having this, this relationship, this faith that's pure and unspoiled. And James says that this religion is looking after orphans and widows and keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. This is really interesting to me because I would define pure worship and Christianity as something different. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. Follow me. I would, I, would, I would use other terminology. It's interesting. I would use first and foremost to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and have a relationship with Jesus. He doesn't mention that at all. In fact, James only talks about Jesus and mentions his name twice in his entire book. Chapter 1, verse 1, when he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, when he's talking to the people he's writing to, he calls them believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it's interesting to me that he doesn't define this great worship as a relationship with Jesus Christ. Rather, it's looking after orphans and not being polluted. Why is that? Well, we have to go back to why he's writing and who he's writing to. Remember, he's writing to the believers. So he is assuming, he's starting with an assumption that these people are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions that in chapter two, verse one. So he's already saying, we've, already, we've, we've got that, that's done. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts up with the practical aspect of, okay, what now? And he, he, every time he uses Jesus, he packages it in this phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells us who he is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who came for us and died on the cross for us to pay for the penalty of our sin. He's also the Lord who we're to give complete devotion to. So he's not discounting salvation through Jesus Christ. He's just starting there and saying, okay, now we, we know that. What now? How do we live now? How do we live out our faith now? So he's, he's painting a picture for us of the right spirit of religion. And I think the spirit has to do with devotion, about this call to devotion. But I think to answer this call of devotion, there are two commitments that we have to make that he gives us here in this passage. And the first is a commitment to maturity. For faith... To have any value at all, to have any worth, it has to do something in us. It has to change us. It has to mature us. It has to grow. If God's doing anything in us, if the Spirit of God is doing anything in us, if the Word of God is making any impact in us, it's going to change us. It's going to grow us. It's going to mature us. It's going to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So there's this commitment to maturity. And so he gives a couple of indicators here. In verse 26, he says, keep a tight rein on your tongue. This tight rein has the idea of, of being under control, okay? And in chapter three, verse three, really chapter three, he, he kind of expounds on this idea of the tongue. But in verse three, he talks about a horse. You put the bit in and you pull on the rein and it controls the horse. So really he's given us an image that we ought to put the bit in our own mouth and pull the reins on our own self and control ourselves. If we can control our tongue, we can control every aspect of our life. So he's talking about this dynamic of being willing to control ourselves and have this dynamic of self-control, allowing the spirit to move in us so we can surrender to him and have this uh, ability of self-control. In verse 27, he gives us a different indicator. We're to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Polluted here means to be, to have a defect or to have a, a spot, a blemish. Keep, this verb here is an active present tense. It means to keep on keeping on. He's saying keep on keeping yourself from being polluted from the world. So my question that popped in my head is how do we do that? How do we keep keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world? Well, the number one way, which James does not deal with in the passage, is what we just talked about giving our life to Jesus Christ. The number one way we keep ourselves polluted from the world is when we receive Christ, he forgives us of our, of our sins, he cleanses us, he gives us his righteousness, he takes away the blemish and the stain of the, the defect of sin. And before I go any farther, I just have to say if there's anyone here this morning, if, if you're not sure or you know that you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, there's never been that time when you have Ask Christ to forgive you and to cleanse you and to come into you and take away your sin, then I would implore you to do that this morning before you leave. Find somebody to talk to because it all starts there. If that's not present, everything else is a wash. 
But what James does mention here are a couple of other ways for those of us that have given our life to Christ. There's a few things that we can do to keep from being polluted. He mentions it in verse 21, to humbly accept the word that's been planted in you. We talked about this several weeks. As we allow the word in us to, to bloom, to blossom, to fill, and to grow in us, it'll push out the weeds. It'll push out that pollution. Verse 15, he talks about recognizing temptation before it can seize. And we talked about that. The idea is that before sin is birthed, before it can seize into sin, we recognize that temptation, and so we say no. So that's the way we keep ourselves from being polluted. Another way, though, is that we deal with our sin appropriately. When we, when we do let sin conceive and birth in us, we have to deal with that in an appropriate way. So what I'm seeing here is a commitment to maturity involves self-control, and it involves discernment. It involves what I'm willing to take in and incorporate into my life, and that which I won't, rather I will discard it from my life. So with all that in mind, let me illustrate what I'm trying to communicate. And I'm going old school today. We're gonna look at a mailbox. Now I know some of you may not even have a mailbox anymore. Some of you may not know what a mailbox looks like. You may never get mail in the digital age. So we're going old school. In fact, I bet some of you don't even know what that's used for, do you? It means you have mail, just if you wanted to know. So let's go old school. If it helps you, you can think email box, if that makes more sense to you. But with the mailbox, what you're doing is you're receiving mail. And you're receiving mail from a variety of sources. But all these sources are wanting you to to buy into what they're offering. They are offering you something, they are giving you something, they are targeting you for some reason, they are addressing you, and the idea is that you will incorporate their mail and buy into whatever the mail suggests. So there's a variety of, of offerings and suggestions. For example, you may get stuff that you, you're excited about, you love, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a refund check that you've been waiting on, it finally comes in the mail, and you're so excited. Maybe it's a, a, a word of encouragement, a note that somebody actually took the time to handwrite you something and mailed it to you so you would be encouraged. Since it's the season of Christmas, maybe you're gonna get some Christmas card from a family that you really enjoy and you're excited to see that. Maybe you get a, 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 a something off on a haircut, which I, also, I actually use. Maybe you get some type of sale ad and the very thing you've been wanting to buy is now half price off, and you're excited. You get something that's such great news that immediately you receive it, and you're excited about it, and you joyfully receive that mail. But maybe it's something that's not quite as exciting. You know you have to deal with it. You know you have to do it, but it's not quite as exciting. Maybe you get in the mail a bill. Now, again, some of you may not ever get bills in the mail because you're doing it digitally. But say maybe it's a, it's a medical bill. Your doctor sent you a bill. Maybe you had some service done, and so they send you a bill. You're not quite as excited about that, but you know it's for you. You know that it's something I have to deal with. If I'm going to be a responsible adult, I've got to pay my bills, so I'm going to handle it, and I'm going to deal with it, even though I may not be real fired up about it. But let's say you may just get some junk mail, <laughs> and as soon as you see it, yeah, it's junk. You know it's junk, so you don't even look at it. You don't even give it any time. But then maybe you get some special offers. And when you first look at it, you say, 
man, this is a great deal. Maybe it's a free meal. Maybe it's a free vacation. Maybe it's a free cruise. It's something deal that looks unbelievably exciting. But then you start to read the fine print and you realize, uh-oh, it's not such a great deal. It doesn't pay the fees. It doesn't pay the taxes. It doesn't, you gotta listen to this. You gotta do this. And so you discard it. Or maybe it looks like such a great offer, you don't take the time to read the fine print. So you jump on that deal only to realize it wasn't such a deal after all and you regret it. This is a picture of what we're talking about in this commitment to maturity in our call to devotion because spiritually speaking, it's the same way. We have sources that are speaking into us, that are addressing us, that are targeting us and they want us to receive and bring into our life that which they are offering. One of those voices is God, and it's God's word, and it's God's spirit. And there are some things that he is offering us that we are fired up about, we are excited about. He offers us love and grace and peace and mercy and joy and forgiveness and everlasting life and eternal life and abundant life. And so immediately without even thinking, we say, yes, I want some of that. But then there are some times that God offers us stuff that we're not quite as fired up about. But we know if we're gonna grow in Christ and be a mature follower of Christ, it's part of the deal. We talked about one of those trials when God brings or allows trials in our life. It, it matures us and it causes us to persevere. It may not be something that we're fired up about even though we're to consider it joy, but we know we receive it. Or maybe it's God's spirit and God's word pricking at areas of our life that we need to address, like we talked about, keeping a tight ring on your tongue. Maybe God's spirit says, hey, you need, to, you need to deal with that. Or maybe it's dealing with anger. Maybe it's dealing with grief. Whatever, you put X in there, whatever you may be dealing with, and God's spirit is coming and addressing you and sending you mail and say, hey, you have X going on in your character. You need to deal with it. But you also have Satan and the world and the flesh throwing stuff at us too, trying to get us to receive what he's offering in our life. And sometimes he just throws us junk mail. And immediately we, we recognize it as junk mail. When, we, when we, we see what he's offering, immediately we know that's not of God, that's not Christ-like, I don't need to participate in that. And it doesn't even tempt us at all because obviously we, 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 we just discard it because we know it's nothing. But then there are other times that he offers stuff that looks very appealing. It looks like the special offer, and you look at this and you say, wow, that looks really good. But as we mature and as we grow, there are times when we'll begin to read that fine print, and we're able to see the lie and the deception in the midst of what he's offering us, so we're able to discard it. But unfortunately, there are times for all of us when we don't read the fine print, and we bite into that thing, and we receive that offer only wishing that we would have discarded that. Here's the point. Maturity allows you to discern the good from the bad, to incorporate the good, and to discard the bad. It gives us the ability to discern what will help me experience 
pure and faultless worship that's part of what God has for me and what I recognize as an offering of Satan that's really temptation and bad for me. And I'm able to tell the difference and discard the bad. Unfortunately, though, all of us end up messing up. (laughs) All of us bite those special offers and don't read the fine print. All of us, at times, allow those things that develop into sinful habits or sinful actions or sinful attitudes. We become polluted by the world, to use James' wording. So what happens? What do we do when that happens? We have to deal with it appropriately. And it's this, this, this mantra that I quote all the time. Admit it, quit it, and forget it. You admit it, you confess it, you own it, you own up to it and say, yes, then you quit it, you repent from it, you, you stop doing it and you turn yourself and say, I don't want to do this and then you forget it. You allow God's forgiveness to cleanse you. I want to chase a rabbit real quick. And the reason I'm chasing this rabbit is I feel, I just feel like it's this for somebody. I've tried to knock this out of my sermon all week and I just can't. But Spirit just kind of keeps bringing it back. So it's for somebody this morning, I think. It's how we deal with this when we allow this sin to come in. It revolves around the story of two men, Judas and Peter. Both of these men sinned. Judas betrayed Jesus, and Peter denied Jesus. Both of them realized they sinned because Judas returned the money, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. But their final outcome was drastically different. Judas ended up hanging himself. But Peter wound up back in fellowship and relationship with Jesus and used mightily in ministry. What's the difference? Why the difference? Well, if I can say it this way, it's because they had two different voices speaking into them. One listened to the wrong voice and the other listened to the right voice. One received the bad mail. The other received the good mail. And here's the point. When we find ourselves caught in sin or trapped in sin where we have, we have fallen and we realize, uh-oh, there are two voices speaking to you. One of them's God. What God is saying is, I love you. You are special. You are valued. You are worthy. You are my child. And I want relationship. I want fellowship. I want intimacy. But there's something going on in your life that's hindering that. So would you deal with that? Would you get rid of that so that we can continue to have this intimacy because you are so loved? That's conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to forgiveness, that leads to restoration and reconciliation. But the second voice is Satan. And what he's saying to you in the midst of that is, you blew it. You're done. You're worthless. You're hopeless. You're helpless. God doesn't love you. You're not valuable to him. You don't deserve his grace. You don't deserve his goodness. You might as well just keep on sinning. You might as well just keep on going down that road because there's nothing you can do about it. That's shame that leads to condemnation, that leads to separation from fellowship and intimacy with Christ. So what I would say, if you're here this morning, or if you ever find yourself in that state, it's critically important that you listen to the right voice. 
And if you're here this morning and you're caught in that trap, know that you are loved by God and valued by God. And he wants to restore you into fellowship with him. So our call to devotion carries with it a commitment to maturity. But secondly, it carries a commitment to ministry. That's what he says in verse 27. Look after orphans and widows in their distress, in their tribulation, in their trouble, in their hardship, in their oppression. Now, some people see this as the definitive statement of Christianity, the statement that Christianity revolves around and only encompasses this act of overseeing orphans and widows. I don't think that's what James is trying to communicate here. Now, I'm not saying we should not tend to orphans and widows. Don't hear that. But James is using this as an example because in that day, the most needy people would be orphans and widows. If, if they lost their loved one, their parents or their spouse, and they had no other family, they were the most needy. They had no way to, to have income, no way to have help. And so that's why they target this. The, the most needy people, what James is trying to say is there has to be a commitment to ministry where we forget about our own needs and we look to the needs of others, whether that's a spiritual need to share Christ, whether that's a physical need, whether that's whatever that need is, that we have a mindset and a commitment to ministry. Now, I'm not camping out here this morning because we talked about that all last week with engagement. This just reinforces the necessity that we're to be out there looking at people and seeking to minister to those people that have spiritual and physical needs. So here's the point. Let me wrap it together. Pure and faultless religion is allowing God to work in me and through me. Pure and faultless religion is manifest both internally through a commitment to maturity and externally to a commitment of ministry. And I deceive myself. I'm deceived in my faith and my worship. If I think the only aspect of my faith is external. And I can live any way I want to. I can do anything I want to. I'm also deceived if I think it's only about the internal. And I'm gonna be holy and godly and pious, but I'm not gonna reach out to the world. I'm gonna come in my little cocoon and I'm gonna regress from the world and have no impact. Either way, we're deceived because pure and faultless religion is the combination of the two. Remove either one and our faith, our religion, our worship loses its value. So with all that said, let's put some tennis shoes on. Okay? Let's apply it. How, how do we take this? Let me give you three ways, three questions to think about. First, are you allowing the Spirit of Christ to mature you? Are you willing to look at immature or undeveloped aspects in your character and allow God to mature those? Maybe anger, it may be fear, it may be greed, it may be jealousy, it may, what, whatever. But are you, are you willing to let God mature you in those areas? Number two, do you practice confession and repentance? The scripture says keep on keeping yourself. It's a, it's a lifestyle, it's a pattern. And confession and repentance should be an ongoing practice in our life. And are you receiving 
forgiveness. Here's number three. Are you involved in ministry to others? Are you allowing God to use you to minister to others? Are you intentional? Are you finding ways that you can reach this world, whether it's to share Christ, whether it's to build relationships to share Christ, whether it's to meet very physical, very present need, whatever it is, you have a mindset where you're intentionally in your day-to-day operation is part of your practice. How can I impact somebody's life? Pure religion involves maturity and ministry. It has an internal impact in you and it has an external impact through you. So with that definition, may we all be religious. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you are blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.